With the 4th of July in the rear view, summer's in full swing this week here in the Capital Region. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. So today, first state in the nation is going to declare a disaster emergency on gun violence. As the region and the nation are seeing spikes in gun violence, reporter Masara Makati takes a look at the deep impact it leaves on those who lose a loved one in the crossfire. At least I got to somebody that could make a difference and, and maybe somebody could put a gun down. And a local heist leaves a greasy trail. Follow the grease and you will hopefully find the culprit. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. All right, we are back once again with Casey Seiler, Times Union editor. We're going to talk about the top headlines. We'll start with Governor Andrew Cuomo declaring a new state of emergency this week. And uh, I would add that it is not pandemic related. This time it was for gun violence. Can you elaborate? Yes, we have traded a pandemic for what the governor described as an epidemic of gun violence. When you look at the recent numbers, more people are dying of gun violence than of COVID. More people are dying of gun violence and crime than COVID. Of course, it's been it has been going on this spike in uh, in cases of gun violence for the better part of two years. We have, of course, felt it uh, here in the capital region, especially in Albany, as we've discussed before. So this declaration, which is allowed under the governor's powers to designate states of emergency, will tap into, will basically expedite the spending of uh, almost $140 million that had already been approved in the state budget. It will just allow the governor to kind of get that money out the door more quickly. And as Josh Solomon laid out, it's going to go to a mix of you know programs for youth, as well as uh, dollars for research that will allow, uh, hopefully, a better explanation of the causes. We, of course, know some of them, but there has been much political wrangling over, for example, how much recent criminal justice reforms might have played into this, such as bail reform. But without a doubt, illegal guns has been a factor in this spike, the availability of them, especially from out of state. So there's additional funding for gun interdiction, a better approach to trying to fight the problem of so-called ghost guns, that type of thing. So the governor, in a in a speech in which he uh, following uh, which he did not take any questions from the press, it has been, I think, almost two weeks now or more since the governor has has taken questions from reporters. Laid out the fact that you know the the argument that we beat back the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, knock wood, 
and uh, this is uh, another challenge to uh, to our society, to our health and well-being that needs to be battled back as well. Now, sticking with the governor for another moment, uh, this week the inspector general refused to reopen an inquiry into the leaking of confidential information to Cuomo from the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, this is a, a long simmering scandal involving an alleged leak of confidential information that took place behind closed doors in what was supposed to be a confidential vote by the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, the state's watchdog agency, back in January of 2019. Following that meeting, the governor called Carl Hasty, irate about how Hasty's appointees or some of Hasty's appointees had voted on a matter that had just been voted on by Jacob. It is clear that that matter involved Cuomo's former aide, Joe Prococo, who is now behind bars on corruption charges. So Hasty called Jim Yates, who is one of his appointees to Jacob. Um, but for more than a year and a half now, since the Times Union initially broke this story, Hasty has uh, refused to say what he spoke to Jim Yates about that day. Jim Yates last week in a Jacob meeting divulged that, in fact, the discussion had been about the fact that the governor knew how he had voted that day. This pretty much obliged Hasty to finally admit that, yes, he had called Jim Yates. And one of Hasty's uh, counsels uh, called um, Julie Garcia, who was another Jacob commissioner, who subsequently resigned after a state inspector general investigation into this alleged leak uh, was unable to confirm it. The IG's investigation was, according to many on Jacob uh, and the Times Union's editorial board and me, for that matter, shabby, really beyond belief. They never interviewed Hasty and they never interviewed Cuomo. The IG's argument is, well, neither of those men face potential you know, liability. It's a misdemeanor to leak the contents of a, a confidential Jacob meeting. Obviously, the argument that, well, we didn't need to interview them because we didn't face criminal liability in this matter is a ridiculous one. The idea that the cops or any other investigative body uh, wouldn't investigate fact witnesses, whether or not they face criminal liability is just it's ridiculous on its very face. Well, more on that and the Capitol Confidential section of TimesUnion.com. Uh, moving up to Saratoga Springs, city officials blamed an uptick in violence there on the social justice movement and quote unquote gangs from Albany. Reactions were strong. It's continuing into this week. Can you just give us a sense of what's happening up there right now? This is a result of the uh, the news conference that was held involving uh, Assistant Police Chief John Catone. It is time for the silent majority we have heard so much about to stand up and be heard. It's time that the want-to-be elected officials who are pushing the narrative of anti-police, defunding the police, corrupt and racist police, to lose the narrative and get informed about what this police department and what this city is truly about. Whose comments were roundly criticized as, as fear-mongering, that essentially he was trying to you know, squash speech. And he explicitly said, when it comes to criminal violence, you are either with us or you're against us, which is not exactly the way that um, criticism of the police or any other official entity is supposed to work in a free society. He blamed activists with the Black Lives Movement 
And that created a great deal of pushback. The activists, um, many of whom were the targets of his criticism, spoke out this week. Now, can you tell somebody who experienced racism since they were seven years old that there is no racism in this city? Once again, it's a slap in the face to the people of your city. It's a slap in the face to the people you are supposed to be representing. And at a extremely contentious meeting of the city council earlier this week, Mayor Meg Kelly, who is on her way out, tried to silence people who were making noises of agreement when folks were stepping up to the mic to make public comments that were critical of what the assistant chief said. Uh, can I just make a comment? If you're going to be uh-huh and, and making remarks, we're going to have you removed. I'm just putting it out there. What? Okay. I will have what? you removed. Yes. Yes. Okay. And you can leave. And I have the police out there. This is a public comment, not a dialogue or a comment by everybody. And then finally, you know, she walked out suspended the meeting, and then returned again. This also is not exactly the way that things are supposed to work in a, an open and civil society, but it's, it's a sign that um, Saratoga Springs is grappling with many of the same debates about you know, law enforcement and activism that so many other communities across the country are. For some reason, it seems to be falling harder on Saratoga, which, as Chris Churchill notes in his uh, most recent column, is a city with a fairly strong uh, sense of itself as as a good place where, you know, these tensions uh, should not exist. All right. Moving down to Niskiyuna, an internal probe there revealed that the ex-police chief had threatened to kill an employee if the results of a racial equity audit targeted police officers. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, Francis Wall, who recently um, stepped aside as the chief of police and issued a, a letter saying that her hiring um, was, uh, you know, nothing but window dressing. It turns out now that her exit was preceded by this internal investigation of comments that she made, while the target of these comments was uh, was not named in um, this report that was released. To our Paul Nelson, pursuant to a FOIL request, we're reporting that it was, in fact, town controller Ismat Alam. These alleged comments did involve a, a, a kind of racial equity audit. It is alleged that the former chief did say if it if CNA, which is the firm that was hired by Niski Yuna to do this audit, comes after my police officers, then I will kill you. And Wall denies the accusation. And uh, obviously it is uh, thrown into stark relief, the ongoing kind of problems within the department and problems within town government. You know, the former controller uh, stepped down after a photo um, showing him in blackface uh, was unearthed. So, you know, more more hassles, <laughs> you know, across the capital region. I wish I could say otherwise at midsummer, but there you go. Indeed. And now with that, though, let's switch to something to look forward to here. The arts and entertainment world around here is coming back. Summer events in particular. What can we look forward to in in that space? Oh, thank heavens. Yes, I really appreciate this turn in the conversation. Yes, indeed. Uh, Artistic offerings, many of which we haven't seen in two years because of the pandemic, are now returning to local stages. Park Playhouse in Albany, which is a, a wonderful, you know, free offering is uh, staging Ain't Misbehaving, the 
Bats Waller musical with, um, you know, fantastic tunes. And Steve Barnes in his review uh, said that it's uh, very strong and, and rousing and just, uh, and just pure pleasure. Next week, we have the return of the New York City Ballet to SPAC up in Saratoga Springs. And Jonathan Stafford, uh, the artistic director of the ballet, um, said he, he really has a hard time holding himself together when he thinks about that first curtain that will go up at SPAC next week as he laid out to Tresca Weinstein in, uh, in this week's preview section. No doubt that will be very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Casey, thank you so much for joining me. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. As we highlighted during the last segment, Governor Andrew Cuomo has declared a state of emergency to address alarming spikes in gun violence in New York State. While much of the focus of the fight against gun violence is on preventing it, what happens after someone's killed in the crossfire? Reporter Masara Makati recently wrote a piece on two Schenectady women who lost their son and brother a decade ago and explored their subsequent journey of grief, healing, and advocacy. I spoke to her recently about it. How did this story come about? The story idea was birthed through um, the student-centered journalism program that People's Perception Project is doing. So I uh, got to work with a group of green tech students um, over the course of two or three meetings to analyze Times Union stories. And then they essentially acted as my assigning editors and told me what they wanted to see in the paper. And the boys were really interested in gun violence But they also really liked stories that captured Black joy. We kind of talked through it and thought, okay, well, maybe the story that's missing from the mainstream media right now is what comes after gun violence, you know? So often media coverage, you know, is up until the bullets are shot and then maybe an obituary about the person who passed afterward, and that's about it. So what happens to the people after the tragic incident happens. What's the grief look like? And what does the healing look like if there is any? So I got connected with Joyelle Gibbs and Rosalind Stevens through Lisa Good, who heads Urban Grief. Joy and Rosalind lost their brother slash son 10 years ago. He was shot and killed while driving in the South End at 1 a.m. Because people say, how are, you, how are you still living? You know, when they know I lost a son, like, how, how are you still living? How do you even get out of bed? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's by the grace of God. I don't know. Tell me about this mother and daughter. Who are they? So Joy Gibbs works as a um, habilitation specialist um, with the Office for Developmental Disabilities. And Rosalind Stevens works um, for a nursing home. Their mother and daughter are really close to each other. Both of them live in Schenectady today. But what they have in common besides that is that they lost their brother, son, 10 years ago to gun violence. Um, Richard Gibbs, uh, who they nicknamed Shoddy, that's how they reference him, 
was shot and killed while driving in the South End uh, in 2011. Tell me about Shadi. Who was he? What was he like? What did they tell you about him? They were just so in love with Shadi. I mean, hearing them describe him, it makes it hard for you not to fall in love with him, too. He tell you, I love you, I love you, I love you a million, million times a day. Mm-hmm. He'll hug you a million times a day. Mm-hmm. He was charismatic. He was funny. He was incredibly loving and incredibly affectionate. He was a daredevil and adventurous. They said that he learned how to ride a bike when he was two years old. He could pick up any sport and excel at it, especially baseball was his favorite sport. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew Shoddy. You know, even 10 years later, Joy gets stopped sometimes by people and they'll say, oh, you're Shoddy's sister. Oh, we love that guy which speaks volumes, especially because they're not from here. They actually grew up in the Bronx and they moved here when Shadi was in high school. Now, one of the things that struck me most about your story is how fresh this grief still seems, even after 10 years. I, you know, they still have moments, they say, when they, you know, collapse, they just collapse with grief. Like, tell me about their grief journey and what you learned. Yeah, that's what struck me too. I think that people tend to think that grief and healing is kind of the straight line, straight diagonal line going up, when in reality, it's a lot of zigs and zags and circles and loops, ups and downs. And no matter how much time passes, it's still there. I would say if anything, maybe it's a more dull ache that someone can have, but that dull ache can then start to really throb and sometimes suddenly feels really sharp. And I think that's what Joy and Rosalind have experienced. And so even though it's been 10 years, I mean, Shadi was the brother, the son. What's it like to have to bury your child? What's it like to lose the best friend that you had growing up? It's a really hard thing for people to relate to and for people to understand. And I think for Rosalind and Joy, you know, in the aftermath of Shadi's death, there was a lot of darkness and there was a lot of temptation to just sit in that grief and sit in that darkness for a really long time, you know, longer than the standard few weeks or whatever it may be for different people. They recognize that there are people who want to be private with their grief and who also want to turn inward with their grief. We made a choice um, to grieve in this way. I always like to use the word um, grieving out loud. And -hmm. it's not to say, oh, we're the only ones. Oh, you know, everyone eyes on us because we're the only ones hurting. Um, but it's to bring awareness that there are a lot of people hurting. But my point they have that- found different outlets for their grief over the past 10 years. One of the most notable ones being their advocacy against gun violence in the community. I learned that I have a voice. I learned that I have power and I learned that I don't have to sit back and take this alone. Mm-hmm. But also different things such as, you know, Joy became a Zumba instructor and she really turned toward dance and fitness to be that release for her. Roslyn really loves water. She loves sitting by water. She loves watching waves. She loves skipping rocks. Those are things that bring her joy. 
the biggest things that have really helped these two women cope over the last 10 years is the children in their lives. Um, Shadi left behind a seven-month-old son when he was killed, and Rosalind is raising his son, Maishan. And Joy has two daughters herself, and so they have found that their children are the purpose of living for them, but also especially looking at Maishan, Maishan just gives them goosebumps all the time because of how similar he is to his father and the way he talks and the way he behaves. And it's pretty crazy because, you know, he didn't grow up around his father, so these weren't learned behaviors. Having Maishan around just helps them feel like Shadi is living on in him. You know, you just feel like, okay, life, life is still going on. You know, you don't feel as empty as lost. Like if we didn't have my nephew, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. It would feel so definite, so over, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we, he would be held in memory, of course, but, you know. Tell me about some of their advocacy. What kinds of things are they doing in the community to help uh, raise awareness and, and combat gun violence? So they do a march against violence. They did one actually um, right after Shadi's death. They do it, I believe, on an annual basis, actually. And then they're also involved in a lot of different community events. So whenever the community is, is, you know, holding a speak out or whatever it may be, or maybe it's something with city officials and, and law enforcement, they'll go and they'll speak at those events as well. So that that to me was the up part for me. It's that that part of of seeming like making a difference. Mm. You know, when you get to that, well, at least I made a difference. Yeah. At least I reached somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, at least I got to somebody that could make a difference, and and maybe somebody could put a gun down. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe somebody don't have to 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 hurt another family. They also created a Facebook page in the aftermath of Shadi's death called Sport a Cap because Shadi really loved wearing caps. It's called Sport a Cap, not Bust a Cap. And every year on the anniversary of Shadi's death, they, their friends, their loved ones, their family will all post pictures on social media wearing caps in Shadi's memory and also to spread awareness about gun violence. For us, is deeper than what the next person may see it as. Like I said to you, when we ask people to wear a cap on the date of his passing, in his memory as well as other people who have lost their lives to violence, it may seem simple. Okay, what is it changing wearing a cap that day? But it's bringing awareness. And as we know, collective awareness can lead to change. After the break, grease thieves have left a slippery trail across the capital region. And I'm 100% not making this up. We'll learn more about it after the break. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation, that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. 
You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Do you know what happens to used cooking oil after restaurants are done with it? If you guessed, it's stolen under cover of night and sold on the black market for hundreds of thousands of dollars, then either you're really into heist films, or you're already aware of what's been happening lately around the region, or both. Reporter Pete DeMola has been investigating this ongoing caper, and I wanted to know more. Grease thieves leave slippery trail across Capital Region. Great headline. Let's start at the beginning. How did you find this story? This indeed is uh, a literal literal headline because um, I believe there was a venue in Scotia where the, the thieves actually did leave a literal grease trail. <laughs> the story came about because uh, Buffalo Biodiesel, it's a Tonawanda-based company uh, in western New York, uh, have really kind of launched an aggressive campaign to alert law enforcement of these steps. As we reported, they're losing about $300,000 a week. They're just completely beside themselves on how to combat this uh, sophisticated uh, operation. Is this just happening in the capital region? Is this statewide? Is this countrywide? Like, what's the scope of this? The scope of this is Buffalo Biodiesel serves a significant part of New York State. And it's not limited to just the capital region. There's thefts in the Hudson Valley as well. And uh, some of their service area in Western New York, as well as small parts of Vermont and Western Massachusetts. And uh, company officials told me it's actually now uh, spreading north up to Warren County and into Glens Falls. What is a grease heist? So here's how it works. During the course of the reporting, I, I did watch a video of these heists, and it's actually a fairly simple operation. These boxes are located behind venues. You wouldn't even notice them if you weren't looking. They're just small black boxes, often located next to dumpsters. These black boxes have leftover grease from restaurant cooking? Correct. So Buffalo Biodiesel, they have contracts with the restaurants to, to buy this grease. It's simple. It's once the restaurant, you know, deposits like they use grease from like a deep fryer uh, into the vat, they basically just forget about it and they get a check in the mail. Small black box behind the restaurant, inconspicuous. So, you know, the operation is fairly at face value. It looks simple where uh, a tanker truck will pull up like a small vehicle with a tank attached to the back. And one member of the team either will cut the padlock off the top or they'll cut the steel grate off the top. And then the second accomplice, so to speak, will back the truck up and they hook the hose up to the vat and they pump it all out and they leave. The whole operation could take less than 10 minutes. So that part of it seems simple. So passerby, you know, there'd really be no way to know if this is illicit or if it's not illicit. And then, according to Buffalo Biodiesel, they uh, are transporting it out of state lines, which makes it very tricky because that's when the federal government needs to get involved. One, one could say, well, let's just look at surveillance camera footage and get you know images of these perpetrators and then we can make an arrest. 
However, you know, working on the story, I've learned that, you know, these people are actually swapping out license plates. So even if they captured a truck and with crystal clear footage and with the plate, you know, that's not, you know, going to pin these people to the wall. So like the company is extremely frustrated and they're trying to really kind of get local law enforcement to treat it as a big criminal operation and not just small, isolated, petty thefts. Now, tell me about specifically what's happening in the region. I know you you wrote in your article that there were a series of thefts in Schenectady, among other Correct. places. Like, what's, so, what's going on around here? So in researching the story, I've gotten blogs with dates right down to the details of when the VAT was accessed, how much was taken, the dates of it, and so on. And these perpetrators have very specific routes. So here in the capital region, let's talk about Schenectady, where uh, they made their way down State Street on June 17th. And it essentially, the truck just drove down State Street, uh, which is the main route uh, road heading uh, you know, from Colony into Schenectady. And they hit a half a dozen restaurants all right in a row. And then it looks like they got done for the night. And then they, you know, hit another Schenectady restaurant. They, they took a small detour in the Burnt Hills. And then, you know, two days later, they went right into downtown Schenectady and hit two businesses directly across the street from each other. And then there's thefts that pop up daily everywhere from, you know, the Hudson Valley to Clifton Park. So it's unclear if this alleged criminal syndicate, if, if it's just only one team or several teams. But it seems to be a very coordinated, sophisticated operation. Now, what are the restaurants saying? Are they saying anything? Because they're they're losing money as well, right? Well, restaurants are not really nearly losing as much money. So one of the, the restaurants that would speak to me on the record was Moret's Steakhouse in downtown Schenectady. He said, well, I think we're probably out $200. You know, it's kind of negligible. Other restaurant owners refuse to talk on the record the company has, you know, different ideas on how they're gaining access. They discovered this going back a bit. They actually discovered this operation uh, about two years ago when they they realized that there was uh, their employees of restaurants were getting paid off to give the thieves the combinations to the locks. So that's how they originally gained access because these tanks simply just had a combination lock. Uh, they would approach the restaurant worker, offer them cash get the combination and go from there. Runs deep. It does run deep. So the restaurants, you know, a lot of people wouldn't talk and, you know, there may be reasons why they don't want to talk, right? What a fascinating story. It's like a script for a movie is pretty much already written. Local law enforcement. I mean, if you know in the story, you know, several agencies didn't bother to respond. I spoke with the, the sheriff of Albany County, Sheriff Apple, and he really kind of downplayed his agency's involvement and said, well, we've had a few thefts, no prosecutions, no arrests. It was limited to, you know, this one locality. However, there's been 700 thefts in the capital region in the past two years, at least. And Buffalo Biodiesel, they sent like eight letters to numerous agencies laying out the thefts in detail. So law enforcement's not really invested in this. Is the, Did they give a reason why? It's a question I would have loved to ask them had they returned our inquiries. But the 
Schenectady Police Department is investigating to their credit, working with state officials, state police to, to determine exactly, you know, how to go about hashing out the jurisdiction. Uh, however, based on, you know, speaking with Buffalo biodiesel officials, they simply just, they want to work with law enforcement. Law enforcement is key to helping them solve this, this these capers, uh, which is why the company is really kind of stitching together and documenting in great detail all of these thefts. And once you look at the bigger picture, you'll see that, you know, geographically it follows like a very specific pattern. There really is no pattern uh, when it comes to specifically which businesses have been targeted. So I spent a fair amount of time last week skulking around these dumpsters in the back, which was fun. Some of them had been hit like four times um, and then others hadn't been hit at all. And they're like right next door. So it's like a really kind of um, interesting landscape. Follow the grease, right? Follow the grease and you will hopefully find the culprit. Uh, That's what they're hoping. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. And special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Masara Makati, Pete DeMola, and Wendy Liberator for their reporting and contribution to this episode.